0: The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the brain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. you silly disco songs the reading Melody Baker. see singing down at Dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Dana Kurt. Dana is an assistant professor in political science at the University of Richmond in Virginia, who works on authoritarian regimes in the Arab world, state-society relations in these countries, and the impact of international intervention. In 2020, she published a book, Polarized and Demobilized, Legacies of Authoritarianism in Palestine, with Oxford University Press. Today, we will speak about authoritarianism in the Arab world, as well as Palestinian opposition to both Israeli occupation and Palestinian authoritarianism. Welcome to the podcast, Dana. Thank you for having me. So we'll start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported?
1: Because all of my cousins supported it, I also supported Real Madrid. I'm not a big sports person. (laughs) But at the time, you know, Zinedine Zidane and all that, so...
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I think Zinadi Zindal is the only acceptable uh, reason <laughs> to support Real Madrid. Second, what is your favorite political song? This is a tough one.
1: I think probably there's this song called A New Chapter. So it, it's in Arabic, but I'm translating the title. Safhak uh, A New Chapter by an Egyptian band called the Skinderilla. They became really big after the Arab Spring. They were involved in the Arab Spring protests. And it's um, a melancholy song for me. So yeah,
0: that's probably my favorite right now. Cool. And finally, what is your favorite political book?
1: In terms of like favorite, I don't know, but in terms of like most important for like my thought process has been On the Arab Question by Azmi Peshawra. It's in Arabic as well, so that's just the translation. But I think that that has had like the biggest impact on my thinking. So I'd have to say that, but lots of different ones come to mind.
0: Of course, it's always a difficult question for academics. (laughs) So let's first talk about authoritarianism in the Arab world. You've already mentioned the Arab Spring, which ended about 10 years ago. In what ways have the protest of that period, which was roughly 2010 to 2012, affected authoritarianism in the region?
1: I'd say the short answer is that since then, authoritarianism has become more entrenched. These uprisings sometimes succeeded in like, unseating dictators but they weren't really able to achieve long-term change in the institutions of these states. And so democracy didn't take hold in any country, even the one country that people would always hold up as like the one exception, which was Tunisia, like is, is falling apart. So the remaining kind of forces of authoritarianism really learned their lesson from that time period. And now we see states engaging in much more like vicious violence and repression. And there's more proactive authoritarianism in terms of like using certain strategies and technologies to preempt dissent. And there's more authoritarian learning from each other and and alliances. So, you know, regular people are still finding ways to surprise like political leadership. So we saw, for example, in 2019, huge protests in Algeria and Sudan and Iraq and Lebanon. Sudan is still ongoing. But, you know, some people called that like the continuation of the Arab Spring. And so there's still this kind of like desire for dignity and democracy, but it's a much more, I think, uphill battle today than it was.
0: He also focus on the international involvement, which generally we think about the U.S., which has been criticized a lot. Has U.S. involvement in the region overall been successful? Has it achieved its objectives? And how is it perceived in the region?
1: American intervention in the Arab world based on polling, so whether you look at the Arab Barometer or the Arab Public Opinion Index, which I used to work on, it's perceived very negatively. So in the Arab Opinion Index, there's a question asking what country poses the biggest risk to the security of the Arab world. And the US is always top two with Israel. And in some countries, it's the top choice. So it's perceived very negatively. In terms of like Whether it's been successful in its objectives, you know, it depends on which objectives we're talking about. So it's been successful in impacting the Arab world, in achieving its own kind of foreign policy objectives vis-a-vis Israel and protecting Israel. But if the objective is a more stable region in the long term, a more democratic region, that hasn't been the case. But I don't think anybody really argues that the US cared so much about that. So I can't claim it's an objective of theirs. And the US has been involved in a couple of different ways. So we think immediately of like the direct military ways, direct military intervention in Iraq, or the military basing all over the region, which has an impact on the regimes in those states that are benefiting from that kind of like signaling of support. But it also has an impact on civil society. So like American aid and funding has had a very very distorting effect on civil society, really neutralized what civil society is supposed to do in a lot of countries. And it has an impact on the calculations of regular people when it comes to this question of democracy. So what I find in some of my research and what people have found, in for example, Amani Jamal in her book, People are less likely to support democracy, not because they think it's a bad idea, but because they think it'll bring negative consequences from the United States, who have proven time and again that they don't tolerate what people actually want in the region. So when people mm-hmm. vote the way that they want, there are often negative mm-hmm. consequences. And so that all you know blends in to create a very bad perception of the United States, I think.
0: Right. And I think the Hamas victory in Gaza is one of the key examples there. Now, what is the relationship between the U.S. and authoritarian resilience in the region? The role of the U.S., for example, in Egypt has been highlighted. Much less attention has been devoted to Bahrain, where the U.S. also plays, of course, a major role. For all the talk of democratization that we have had from various administrations, not just the neoconservatives, what is the connection between U.S. involvement and authoritarian resilience?
1: Yeah, so I kind of touched on this a little bit, but essentially where the United States has direct military basing, it's signaling. So so like Bahrain, like the example you mentioned, it's signaling to the people involved in the protests. It's signaling to the regime in that country that there are red lines that are not going to be crossed. There's no way that the Bahraini regime was going to fall right? Even if the U.S. itself is not going to send troops to do that, it was the Saudis that drove in the tanks, there is kind of a protection around certain countries and certain regimes, particularly around these kind of strategic areas where there is more Iranian intervention and fear about Iranian influence. And so the U.S. can kind of bolster regimes in that way. And because people know the regime is bolstered that way, it changes their calculations as well. It changes their ability to expand the scope of their demands. And the lesson of the air spring, I think, think, tells us that authoritarian resilience is coming from a couple of different places. And most of these places you see some American involvement, though I'm not saying that it's entirely the U.S.'s fault, but for example, In a lot of these countries, authoritarian resilience came from the fact that there are anti-democratic political elites. So even the liberals, the leftists in some of these countries, I'm thinking of Egypt, for example, they don't believe in democracy. They assist remnants of the authoritarian regime in making sure these uprisings fail, just you know, because they don't actually think that people deserve a right to representation. There's again the kind of international intervention that I was talking about. That has hollowed out the ability of political movements to actually build societal buy-in for the idea of democracy, because that democracy would upend the balance that the U.S. reigns supreme in the region, that Israel is completely defended and that there's no threat to its kind of hegemony. So there's really no appetite from the Americans to support, for example, in Egypt, when they elected a Muslim Brotherhood candidate and there were some shifts on the issue of Palestine from the Egyptian perspective. You know, that didn't last long. And then when that particular person, Mohammed Mursi, was toppled, the U.S. didn't even call it a coup, didn't intervene, didn't care. The last thing I just wanted to mention was also, I think a big part of authoritarian resilience in the region is sectarianism. So the Arab Spring basically showed us that this question of identity in the region is still an unsolved one. And I think the U.S. has played a role in that as well, given its role in in Iraq, for example, and in kind of cementing political system that upholds sectarian identity over other types of identity. And so when that question of identity has remained unsolved, people fall back onto like, they're not Iraqi or Syrian or Lebanese, they're Shia, they're Sunni, they're Alawi. And because of that, we saw really vicious violence erupt in a lot of places. And I don't think that issue has been resolved at all. It's just that right now we're in a period where the sectarian forces have
0: won, but that's going to continue to be an issue in the future. Right. So let's move to your book that you published in 2020, Polarized and Demobilized Legacies of Authoritarianism in Palestine. Can you explain the main thesis of that book?
1: Yeah. So the book basically says that international intervention, particularly American intervention, because I'm talking about the Palestine case specifically in that book, has led to polarization in Palestine. I'm talking about a particular time period. And that polarization also impacted society kind of downstream by making it difficult for Palestinian society to mobilize like it once did you know, to face some of the challenges it faces vis-a-vis the Israeli occupation. And basically, kind of, you know, as the title mentions, demobilized Palestinians and reduced their capacity to actually create unified kind of movements. So that's it in a nutshell, but I can kind of explain the different parts.
0: So you have already mentioned that before, the relationship between U.S. involvement and civil society in the Arab world. Can you explain that a little bit more in detail with the case of Palestine? In what way does U.S. involvement kind of hollow out the civil society sphere?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So prior to this kind of direct American intervention vis-a-vis the peace process in Palestine, so we're talking like, you know, prior to 1990, 1994. Palestinians, despite the occupation, had these really like, robust, vibrant grassroots organizations. Because they don't have a government that represents them, because they're under occupation, they have to resort to building a really strong civil society that's actually able to coordinate effectively, puts together this huge uprising called the Palestinian Intifada that actually you know gains concessions from the Israeli occupation. So it's a successful and, as I said, very robust civil society. After American intervention, what happens to that civil society is that it becomes kind of quote-unquote professionalized. So the name of the game becomes, you know, foreign funding. You have to compete for foreign funding. So a lot of these grassroots organizations transform into NGOs. And the foreign funding is mostly American. But even if it's not American, even if it's coming from the EU or other places, it adheres to the standards that the Americans set. So all of a sudden, you know, you have this group that might talk about the occupation, but now they have to apply for funding, they have to open up an office, they have to, you know, put together conference presentations, whatever. Well, the scope of what they address narrows. It's not about the occupation anymore, it's about, you know, women's empowerment or you know, like it it just kind of whittles it down. So that kind of created a situation where it hollowed out the grassroots organizations that already existed. There was a proliferation of these NGOs, and these NGOs don't really have the same connection to Palestinian society as those grassroots organizations once did. So it's like they're not even able to really react to what Palestinians need in an effective way. So the term that's used is NGOization, like that kind of process happened after American intervention, essentially, in the Palestine case, and it has persisted. And so now we see what was once a very mobilized society, a society that could protest very well is not able to do so anymore.
0: And this is a broader critique that you've also seen towards NGOs and Western funding in Africa, the post-Soviet space. Now, most of the international media, when we talk about Palestinian protests, focuses exclusively on protests against the Israeli occupation. There are also protests against Palestinian authoritarianism. What are the similarities and differences in these protests? The differences are on two levels. One
1: is geographic. Because of the fragmentation of the land that has now come about as a result of the 1994 Oslo Accords, where the West Bank particularly is split into these tiny areas, what we're seeing is that Palestinians in certain areas, they're mostly impacted by the Palestinian Authority. And so that's where you're seeing you know some protests against the PA. And Palestinians in other areas, they have no engagement with the Palestinian Authority. So people in Jerusalem, for example, they're not going to be protesting the Palestinian Authority. So it's a geographic fragmentation. We're seeing it, you know, people protesting one governing apparatus here and another governing apparatus there, depending on who is (laughs) impacting their life. But there's also kind of a political difference as well. To be clear, the Israeli occupation brings about a broader subsection of society when there are these protests. But at the end of the day, the people who are protesting the PA, they're more politicized. They are, you know, maybe more on the left more on the Hamas side of things, but those are quickly repressed. But they have issues with the ruling party in the Palestinian Authority. And that is different from the kinds of protests against Israeli occupation, which are broader, and that encompass a larger group of people, and, you know, diverse viewpoints. But to be clear, those things go hand in hand, like Palestinian authoritarianism goes hand in hand with Israeli occupation, because, you know, one perpetuates the other.
0: And it's not as if the Palestinian Authority is a fully sovereign entity. I can imagine that actually quite a lot of protest is directed towards actions that Israel has told the Palestinian Authority to undertake. So in a sense, you could say that the protests against Israeli occupation are more national and the protests against the Palestinian Authority are more partisan. Yeah, I think that's correct. You've also researched who protests. So who protests in general, and are there differences between these two protests in terms of who comes out?
1: Yeah, so on the question of the Israeli occupation, like protests against the Israeli occupation, there's been a shift in who and where the protests are happening, who's engaging in them and where they're happening. You know, before all of this fragmentation, before this sustained American intervention and all of that, we saw most protests against the Israeli occupation happening in cities. That's where most people live. That's where there's a lot more resources to engage in protest and collective action. Today, we're seeing those protests mostly in marginalized spaces and spaces kind of on the outskirts, let's say. So villages, parts of the West Bank and Jerusalem where the Palestinian Authority is not actually functioning. So there is that kind of difference. So it's, again, geographic, but there's also to some degree a class difference The people who are engaging in these kinds of protests in a more sustained way and long-term way, they're not the same kinds of people that used to engage in these protests, let's say 20, 30 years ago. Now, the protests that happened last year in Palestine in May 2021 were kind of unprecedented because they did have such a wide, large-scale buy-in, but still parts of the West Bank, those cities where most Palestinians live, were underrepresented. They were under-protesting the Israeli occupation, and those marginalized spaces were more overrepresented. Now, the new thing with the protests was that Palestinians with Israeli citizenship also joined in, but that's kind of another aspect,
0: yeah. Right. Although it is important because we often talk about the Palestinians as if there's like one space, but of course they live in three different spaces mm-hmm. and the Palestinian Authority rule within the occupied West Bank in the nominally independent Gaza Strip, and then, of course, still a sizable Palestinian population that lives in Israel proper, yeah. So are there differences between the protests in the West Bank and in the Gaza? Again, in terms of who organizes and perhaps how?
1: So in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority sometimes faces protests against its own actions. A lot of it, as you said, is related to its role vis-a-vis Israel, You know, maintaining Israel's security, so they're arresting activists or whatever. And we've discussed kind of who is engaging there. In the Gaza Strip, there were large scale protest called the Great March of Return on the border, not border, but like whatever it is between Gaza and Israel. And that was not organized by Hamas. That was organized by a lot of different groups and like kind of an outpouring of societal support. Hamas is actually quite, you know, I think this is obvious, but Merit's saying it's quite authoritarian. So it's not that it allows for free expression or like that Palestinians are able to necessarily protest what's happening in the Gaza Strip. It's quite clamped down. When there are protests, it's vis-a-vis the Israeli occupation, but basically it's been Palestinians protesting in these border areas and being gunned down. And Hamas doesn't necessarily always like the fact that people are undertaking any kind of collective action without their consent or without their direction also. I don't know if that answers your question, but...
0: It does. I mean, there is obviously much more freedom within the Palestinian Authority and West Bank than in Gaza, even though there is authoritarianism within the West Bank as well. But again, I like to highlight the complexity. And on that matter, you've already mentioned the Palestinians with Israeli citizenship. As you said, in the protests last year, one of the things that stood out was the much larger involvement of the Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, which had become over the last decade or so, to a certain extent, totally demobilized and more isolated from palestinians outside of israel do you see that as a shift are there generational changes does this have to do with the far right turn in israel most notably of course the basic law which is now codified that israel is a jewish state which is an affront to the 20 percent of the population that isn't jewish which is predominantly palestinian or was this a one-off
1: I don't think it was a one-off. I think this happened for a couple of reasons. One, as you mentioned, there's a generational shift. These are younger activists. There has been kind of ongoing work to connect with Palestinians from other parts of historic Palestine. So like Palestinian citizens of Israel connecting with Palestinians in Jerusalem, connecting with those in the West Bank. And even though there are physical barriers that keep them separated, they are trying to coordinate with each other and build on each other's movements. But as you mentioned, Israel is nominally democratic, right? The Palestinian citizens of Israel are second class citizens, but they're citizens. They have some rights, not all rights. They're highly repressed. They're overrepresented in the prison system, whatever. But like, still, they have some resources to work with. They have more freedom of movement. And the Israeli political system has failed them so much. And the younger generation, talking about the Palestinian citizens of Israel, they have really lost all hope in the Israeli political system, even in their own kind of politicians who engage in the Israeli political system. So people like Ayman Oada and things like that, they just don't see it as legitimate at all. And so what we saw in last year's protest is the activists involved in the protests were literally talking about raising a national consciousness, explaining to Palestinian society within Israel that like this is a national issue, that their personal interests cannot be divorced from the national interest and all the actions, whether it was the economic strike, you know, all the various things that they did during that time were about connecting their plight and their kind of increased repression in the Israeli system, all of that, to what's happening overall in Israeli control of historic Palestine. So I don't think it's a one-off. I think we're going to see more building on that in the future. Yeah.
0: Now, probably already more than two decades ago, the Israeli peace movement with groups like Peace Now was really big. It was big in Israel. It was active in the West Bank. It was very popular in the U.S. and in Europe among progressives. I interviewed people from Peace Now about 10 years ago, and I was struck by how small the organization now was. At the same time, there are some other groups like Beth Salem, mm-hmm. who are still doing a lot of work. In what way do Jewish groups, Jewish-Israeli groups still play a role in these protests? Because there is polarization on both sides, and you see that in polls as well. Sympathy, empathy among Jewish-Israelis for the Palestinian plight has gone down. Have the relationships, by and large, become marginal? or are there still important ties between anti-occupation groups within Jewish Israelis and among Palestinians? It's
1: a tough one because sorry to like phrase it this way I'm just trying to think of it as clearly as possible but it's kind of a question of like quantity versus quality. Those groups today that are anti-occupation I'm not even just talking about peace now. As you said, they're quite marginal now. But even some of the new groups and some of the new activists that are engaged in, you know, documenting the land confiscations in Jordan Valley, all of that, they are a small number. Like, they don't represent any sizable portion of the Israeli public, I think. But just because they're small doesn't mean that they don't have an important impact. So, for example, like, it's not inconsequential that B'Tselem put out a report saying that Israel is an apartheid state. That's not inconsequential. Yes, Palestinian organizations had been saying that for a long time and had put out lots of reports. But at the end of the day, like when an Israeli organization says this, it lends more voices to the same cause, right? Yeah. When there are Israeli activists present in some of these villages that are facing land confiscations, I don't want to over you know emphasize like their impact or overestimate their impact, but it's still an impact. And yeah, I, I don't think that that should be ignored. I just don't know that it's reflective of the broader trends in Israeli public opinion. I think it's going to have an additive effect over time. I don't think it's going to be the consequential effect of like where this conflict goes. That really relies on how much the Palestinians organize and where they go, because they're the biggest group, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about Palestinian authoritarianism?
1: I'll give a brief little story. I was on this panel and my co-panelist came up to me and like before the panel and was like, you're going to talk about the PA, right? Like you have to say like, you know, we give them so much money and look how they treat their people. And I was a little bit you know, surprised by that because it speaks to this greatest misunderstanding. Like the Palestinian Authority is not doing something outside its scope. When the Palestinian Authority is authoritarian, when it doesn't listen to Palestinian society, when it arrests Palestinian activists, it's doing what it's supposed to be doing by design. You know, how the CIA trains preventative security forces, that's what it's doing. When the Palestinian Authority was created and supported and given funding and all of that, and continues to get that kind of support from the US and from Israel, it's intended to do this. And so, Palestinian authoritarianism is part and parcel of the Israeli occupation. and I think that sometimes people separate it and obviously there are certain you know impacts that are particular and distinct related to Palestinian authoritarianism, but we don't want to like lose sight of the fact that it's kind of one part of a bigger problem essentially.
0: Thanks for coming on the show, Dana. Thanks. You can follow Dana El Kurt on Twitter at, at Dana L Kurt. That's simple. And please buy and read her book. Polarized and Demobilized, Legacies of Authoritarianism in Palestine, Published by Oxford University Press in 2020, at or through your independent bookseller. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonuts with the classic song Karl Marx-supported Millwall, and I'm your host, Kas Mude. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice, and don't forget to rate us. Till the next time, the economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Port Mill, he went with Daddy Baker. you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. see him down a bunker, playing with his beard. No wonder that has capital turned out a little weird.